It is an immense pleasure and a very great privilege to be back again in the Philadelphia Conference and Reformed Theology and to be in this church once more and in the presence of so many whom I now delight to number amongst my friends. I am just beginning what is known as sabbatical leave from my congregation in Glasgow. And I suppose I'm suffering a little of the sense of loss of identity that one finds at such times. And I was thinking this evening there is no place that I would rather be at the beginning of such a period as here in 10th Presbyterian Church and in this conference particularly. There is no other theme, certainly, which I would rather be immersed in with you in these few days than this glorious theme of the nature and character of the God of the Bible. God himself has instructed us to prize such a study above everything else that we possess in life. This is what the Lord says, says Jeremiah in chapter 9. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Now that is our great concern during this conference that we might not only ponder together the glories of the character and nature of God, but that we may in a deeper sense come to know him. That is our great concern and the great purpose of this conference. One of the greatest works of all time on the existence and attributes of God was published posthumously by his trustees, and written by Stephen Charnock, the Puritan of 300 years ago who ministered in London, very near to where Dick Lucas's church now is. When they were publishing it and seeking to commend this work to the Christian public, his trustees wrote these words, A mere contemplation of the divine excellences may afford much pleasure to any man who loves to exercise his reason. But if that be so, what incomparable sweetness ought believers to find in viewing and considering now these perfections which they will more fully behold hereafter, seeing what manner of God in whom they have a covenant interest, how wise and powerful how great, good, and holy he is. Indeed, if rich men delight to sum up their vast revenues, to read over their rentals, to look upon their hoards, how much more should the people of God please themselves in seeing how rich they are, in having an immensely full and all-sufficient God as their inheritance. 
Now that is what we are to be doing together. Beholding the enormous wealth that is ours in the glory of the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ. Now this evening our theme introduces us to the whole doctrine of God as we turn to consider the subject of the greatness of God. Or if you prefer to think of it in the other way that Scripture introduces us to this theme, we are concerned here this evening to magnify the Lord together. So the psalmist invites his fellows, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Now you will know what happens when we magnify something that we are not entirely able to see. It is not that we actually increase its size. What we do when we magnify something is to make more obvious and apparent to us its true nature. And this is what the psalmist is meaning when again and again he speaks of magnifying the name of God. We are seeking that God would make more apparent to us, bring us closer to the greatness and the glory of his nature and character. Now in another of the Psalms, in the great 145th Psalm, there is a necessary warning to all of us who would contemplate such an exercise. Says the psalmist in Psalm 145, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, but his greatness is unsearchable. That is, we are going to find, even as we have contemplated the nature and character of God, that we have only come to the edges of his ways, that we are like kindergarten children in the honors class of a university, that we are paddling inevitably in the shallows, and only when we see him face to face will we ever understand in all its full glory the greatness of the nature and character of God. Now there are two corollaries of that that we need to have in mind the whole of this weekend. The first is that we are therefore absolutely dependent for all our knowledge of God on revelation. Except God reveals himself to us, we can know nothing of him. And God reveals himself, the glorious reality of our coming together on this weekend is that God has revealed himself. He has made himself known in creation, supremely in his Son, and with all in Holy Scripture. So for our understanding of God, we are absolutely dependent upon and need to be absolutely tied to Holy Scripture. The second corollary is that we are equally dependent upon the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that he may come and take the truth about God and illumine our understanding and illumine the written page of Holy Scripture, so that not with our confidence in the wisdom of men, but in the confidence of the revelation that God has given and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we may together have our eyes open to see something 
of his majestic glory. Now this evening I want us for these reasons to turn for the rest of our time to a consideration of the passage that we read together in Isaiah chapter 40. So you will need your Bible open this evening and I hope you will bring it regularly in these days. And I want to ask you to open it at Isaiah chapter 40, and we are going to begin rather earlier than our reading, that is, around verse 12. You will know, I'm sure, that the 40th chapter of Isaiah is a watershed in Isaiah's prophecy. He is now looking far beyond his own day, some 150 to 200 years on, to the desolate days when Israel as a people was decimated, when its temple was destroyed and the very cream of the nation was taken captive. Now what God reveals to Isaiah is this, that when the people of God are in a moribund condition, when the cause of God appears to be languishing, there is nothing that is more needed by God's people than a fresh revelation of who he is in his glory and greatness, in his true character, in the word that he has spoken. A new vision of God is therefore what Isaiah concentrates upon in this new section of the prophecy. And so God bids him speak to the heart of Jerusalem to encourage and give her hope, and the focus of that hope lies in this revelation of the nature and character of God, for whom a way has to be prepared. The voice that cries in verse 3 is a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Now the apex of that promise is reached in verse 5, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. Now of course that promise was fulfilled in the deliverance of God's people out of the captivity. But the fulfillment was certainly not exhausted then. We are aware that it was fulfilled in a yet greater and deeper sense in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose forerunner John the Baptist quotes these very words and says, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. But even in a greater sense, the fulfillment of these words yet awaits us. Because the glory of the Lord, which all mankind will see together, will only come at that ultimate revelation of his glory when the Lord Jesus Christ returns again at the end of the age. And then the real and ultimate glory of God will be manifested and every eye shall see it and they shall see it in the face of Jesus Christ. But here the prophet says, here is your God. Behold, the sovereign Lord, verse 10, comes with power and his arm rules for him. 
Now the rest of this chapter of Isaiah is composed of prophetic insight into the incomparable greatness of that sovereign Lord. They are a people at the time when Isaiah sees into the future. They are a people who are in the midst of bondage. They are in a, pe a people in great despair. They have known something of the distress of being oppressed by the enemy. And God now brings to them this vision of himself as the cure for their diseases. As Professor John Oswald puts it in his recent and quite excellent commentary on Isaiah, the prophet seems to be saying that if humanity could ever glimpse the true picture of God's greatness and glory, their problems would be on their way to being solved. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, with all my heart I believe that that is true of our generation. There is nothing more that the church of Jesus Christ needs so much in our day as this fresh revelation, an eye-opener to the glory and majesty and wonder of the God who has drawn near to us in his mercy in Jesus Christ. Oh, that we might pray that for one another in the days of this conference, the eyes of your understanding may being opened, as the apostle cries, that you may behold the glory of God. Now, Isaiah displays the greatness of God to us in this passage by relating four elements of his greatness to the created order. You will notice what they are as, let me tell you uh, what they are first of all, and then we will turn to them. First of all, his uniqueness within the creation, verses 12 to 14. Secondly, his independence of the creation, that's particularly verse 14. Third, his supremacy above the creation, and fourthly, his sovereignty over the creation. Let me turn with you then to these four great themes that Isaiah takes up in the second half of this chapter. First of all, the uniqueness of God within the creation. Verse 12, the prophet asks five unanswerable questions to establish the absolute uniqueness of God in the created world. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? That is, who beside God has done this? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance? You will notice that all of these questions relate to the measuring of creation. And they display God as infinitely great and transcendent above his creation and unique within it. And they are all challenges to man in his littleness to stop viewing God as though he were a person like ourselves. Now that is one of the tendencies into which we have grown as we have thought about God in his personal nature. We have tended to think of God as a person like ourselves. 
You may remember how the psalmist records God complaining about this to his people in Psalm 50, verse 21, when they had lost the vision of his greatness. He says, You thought I was altogether like yourself. So Isaiah asks, Who else holds the oceans in the hollow of his hand to measure them? This is what God does. Who else measures the heavens as a hand breadth? Or the soil of the earth in a basket? Or holds the mountains in the scales to weigh and balance them? Can you picture what he is saying of God? Here is the nature of God that he takes the mountains as it were. Can you think of it, Everest and the Eiger, and he puts them in a balance and holds them to see which is the heavier. Here is the Lord God who has made the whole of the creation, putting his hand on the heavens and measuring it with the span of his hand. Now Isaiah says, who else has done this? And what he is seeking to teach us is the vastness of God and the immensity of the Creator. And this is precisely what we have lost in so much of our thinking. It's one of the reasons that we greatly need a new emphasis on the doctrine of God as Creator and on all the biblical teaching about the creation. Have you noticed that this is how men in the Bible enlarge their faith and feed it? You know that your faith needs to be fed. Well, here is how the men of God in Scripture feed their faith. They come into the presence of God. And do you remember what they say? Jeremiah, for example, in his prayer to God, what does he say? Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, what is it that persuades them of the glory and greatness of God? It's the doctrine of creation. Somebody was saying in something I was reading the other day, evangelicals historically have been strong on the doctrine of redemption and weak on the doctrine of creation. And I think there's a great deal of truth in it. You find the apostles when they come into the presence of God in Acts chapter 4, and they say, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is within them. They are taken up with God as the creator. Now here, God is himself using this as an argument to persuade his people to trust him. Notice how he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? And he goes on to expound to them how he is the one who has created the heavens and the earth. A.W. Pink is right when he says, The God of this century no more resembles the sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle the glory of the midday sun. And my dear friends, we greatly need to grasp that the God of Scripture is a God who sits in relation to the whole of his creation as the one who holds the mountains in a balance, 
who spans the universe with the span of his hand. And we get things in proper perspective if we see this, the uniqueness of God in creation. But you will notice the second thing that Isaiah turns to in verses 13 and 14 is the independence of God of the creation. Again, he poses a series of questions, this time designed to highlight the truth that ultimately the only wholly independent being in the universe is God. Who has understood the Spirit of the Lord, verse 13, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? You see, one great element in God's greatness is that he has no needs. Have you grasped this? Need is a creature word. We all of us have them. God has none. He is complete in himself. And all his relationships with the rest of creation and his relationship with us as his people are a result of his sovereign will and pleasure and not because he has any need within him or any sense of incompleteness without them. I think we need to grasp this. Let me illustrate it to you in this way. When I was a very young Christian, I can still remember being in a large meeting, as large as this, being addressed by a missionary leader. And he told a fascinating and harrowing story of a train crash that had taken place somewhere in the British Isles. Many people had been killed. There was awful carnage as multitudes were lying in the wreckage of the train, desperately ill. And from the train there emerged a man who turned out to be a brilliant surgeon. But he walked up and down amongst the horrific tragedy of this crash. And he was heard by somebody to say, If only I had my instruments. If only I had my instruments. But he went away weeping because he was helpless. Now, I can still remember that man pressing upon us. That, my friends, he says, is exactly what God is like in the world today with the terrible smash that sin has brought, he walks up and down in lands of the earth saying, if only I had my instruments. And I remember feeling so sorry for God as a young man. I thought how frustrated he must be, how difficult for him to be so helpless as this. Because, you see, this was a picture of God which I later discovered in the Bible was a distortion of the truth, not a representation of it. Because the God of the Bible is a God 
who is absolutely complete in himself. He chooses to use instruments, but he does not need them. And his independence is here an independence of mind and wisdom and purpose. He is, Isaiah is saying, the only free agent in the universe. Have you grasped this? Who has understood the Spirit of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? That is, he is saying, who taught God this amazing wisdom? With whom did he consult when he was making his plans? Now the implied answer is with nobody. You know how we say of people who show some evidence of intellectual brilliance? Who was his teacher, we say? Where did this man learn such knowledge? And we all of us have teachers. None of us in the ultimate sense is original. Although we would like to think we are sometimes. But we're not. We have been taught, you see. But when you ask, who taught the Lord his wisdom? From whom did he have understanding? Where did he get his decrees and designs? The answer is from nobody. He is independent. He is the only untaught original mind. He is the only free agent in the universe. What he decrees, he will do. What he decides, he will perform. What he plans, he will fulfill. Not only so, but his wisdom is perfect and unsullied and unspoiled by any kind of human imperfection. So his ways are perfect. His words are true. His decrees are good. His plans are flawless. And he never, never makes mistakes. And Isaiah says, you need to learn this. In the situation that his people were in at this particular juncture, how desperately they needed to learn of the perfection of God's wisdom and his independence of his creation. The third thing that Isaiah brings before us is his supremacy or preeminence above the creation. Look at verse 15 to 20 with me. To establish this truth of the preeminence of God above the creation, Isaiah first turns to the nations of the earth. Compared to God, he says, they are like a droplet of water dripping from a full bucket. Now you know how insignificant that is. As someone carries a bucket full of water, there is a drip that may appear from the bottom of the bucket and drop unnoticed to the earth. Now that is what the nation's are like compared to God. 
And of course, Israel had become cowed and afraid of the overwhelming power of the nations around them. They had come to think of power in these terms, in human terms, of human resources and human influence. And God says the nations are like a drop in a bucket, or they are regarded as dust on the scales. When you are thinking of what something weighs the dust on the scales is insignificant. You might imagine that a Scotsman wouldn't be very prone to believe that, but it's true nonetheless, and the comparison is so real. They are regarded as dust on the scales, he says. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. A comparison probably with all the islands of the earth or the Mediterranean coastlands. But the whole point is, you see, that Israel has tended to think of true greatness in terms of mighty nations and military powers. And here God humbles the nations and exalts his own name and glory so that in verse 17, before him... All the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. And the very last phrase at the end of verse 17 is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1 for the earth being without form and void. In comparison with God, therefore, they are nothing, worthless, less than nothing. Now, having demonstrated how lightweight and lilliputian the nations are before God, in verse 16 he turns to tell us that nothing man can offer to God in worship would adequately exalt and honor him. Notice verse 16, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. The vast cedar forests of Lebanon would not provide enough fuel. The whole of its animal population would be insufficient sacrifice to praise his glory and express his honor. Now here is something that we experience, don't we, in some measure when we come to worship in moments when we are brought into the presence of God and something of his infinite glory begins to dawn on our spirits, we recognize that we are totally incapable of offering to him the worship and the glory that belongs to him. No wonder Stephen Charnock says, it is in such an hour that the sensitive soul longs for heaven. Because there we shall be free to worship and adore and honor him in the way that will truly magnify his name. John Calvin prays at the end of one of his expositions, and if you have never read John Calvin praying, you really ought to do that. Some of his expositions are worth the money for the prayers at the end of them alone. Sovereign Lord, he says, thy glory is beyond all praising. 
Thy majesty leaves us speechless. We can neither fathom thy greatness nor truly praise it. Therefore all that we may do is humble ourselves before thee and lie in thy presence crying, Be thou exalted above all. Now it is this infinite greatness of God which makes both images that represent God in verse 18 and idols which replace God in verses 19 and 20 so offensive to him. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? That, of course, is the root of the second commandment, that we shall not make to ourselves any graven image, because the glory and greatness of God is inevitably going to be blasphemed by an image of that kind. It is that that makes idols such an offense to God also. And in verses 19 and 20, Isaiah clarifies that for us, reaching at the end of verse 20, the moment of sarcasm where he says he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. So God's greatness is revealed to us in his preeminence above all that he has created. Unformed. But fourthly, the prophet goes on to tell us from verses 21 to 24 that God's greatness is revealed in his sovereignty over the creation. Now here is something again that he wants to awaken the understanding of God's people to grasp. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. Now the prophet charges the people with having forgotten the central fact of all life, and that is that it is the living God who is on the throne of heaven and earth. And his greatness is exercised in his sovereign rule over everything that he has made. First, you notice, he is sovereign over the earth in verse 22. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And before him, the peoples of the earth are like grasshoppers. But of course, that is not how they thought of themselves. And God's people were being infected by the spirit of man-centeredness. They were impressed by great men and had come to the conclusion that the course of history was decided by princes and rulers of the earth. Well, now God sets their thinking straight in verses 23 and 24. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Because it is he, and not they, who sit on the throne of the universe. 
and directs the affairs of men and nations and ultimately decides their destiny. Now that's something that we greatly need to learn afresh in our generation. It's true, of course, that every period of history has produced its proud dictators who intend to establish a kingdom for themselves. But you notice how Isaiah pictures them. Verse 24. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground. He pictures them in horticultural terms, you see, to a plant that has been carefully placed in the ground and taken root and has begun to grow up and show itself. And then at their proudest moment, when they are displaying themselves to the eyes of men and enjoying their attention, when they rise up against the living God at his own time, he reaches down, as it were, from heaven and he simply blows on them. And they are scattered. Now that's a very vivid picture of the sovereign Lord in his majesty ruling over the nations of the earth, including his enemies. I stood a few weeks ago in Germany, in Munich, in one of these vast squares where Adolf Hitler once stood, speaking to a multitude that it was difficult to imagine in size, but you could almost sense the atmosphere for the places still there, a great area of open ground. And one inevitably thought of how this man who once terrorized half the world and made the rest of the world tremble before him was blown aside by the living God. Do you remember Nikita Khrushchev? who spoke at the time when Russia was putting its first space capsule into orbit. He said, we are going to send two Russians into space. And we are going up into the outer atmosphere of space. And if we find God there, we will topple him from his throne. Some of you may not even have heard of Nikita Khrushchev. It's interesting to ask whose throne toppled first, isn't it? But my dear friends, this is the kind of thing that the prophet Isaiah is forcing people to think about, and we need desperately to think about it today. Because our vision and view of God has been so restricted that we have begun to get this man-centered view of the world and of history. 
And I want to say to you this evening that the destiny of men and nations, the great decisions that are going to affect the destiny of the world in which we live, are not taken in Washington, or in Moscow, or London, or any other human capital. They are taken where the Lord God Omnipotent sits on the throne with the government resting on his shoulders. And that's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his mercy has become our God and our Savior. We need our vision expanded to grasp that. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. But notice... He is not only sovereign over the earth, he is sovereign over the heavens. From verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Now he has bid them look to the earth, you see. And understand that these rulers and princes of the earth are under the sovereign hand of Almighty God. Now he says, look to the heavens. Who created all these He who brings out the starry host one by one. Now, the significance of lifting their eyes to the heavens for the Babylonians was this. That people who lived in a Babylonian culture would have been influenced by their astrology. They were primitive people, you see, who thought that their life was ruled by the stars. Have you ever come across any other primitive people like that? I guess they opened their paper in the morning to consult their horoscope to see whether it was propitious to do something on a particular day, you know. Do you know in Britain today, in the telephone service, you can get all sorts of things. You get cricket line, which gives you the scores of the latest cricket match. And my telephone goes up hugely in the summer when my son's at home and he wants to get the latest cricket results. Cricket line gives you that. You can get pop line, which gives you the latest music on the pop charts. You can get story line, which gives you a story any time of the day that you like to dial. Do you know the latest thing you can get? Star line which tells you what the latest horoscope is for the day. And I was intrigued to discover the London Times reporting a few weeks ago that it is the line with the heaviest use of all. Well, these people amongst whom God's people had lived, they were people who believed that the starry host somehow controlled their destiny. But now Isaiah speaks the words that God has given him and says, Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one. Now the language is military. And what he is speaking about is God like a great general 
marching out the stars one by one, and he calls them each by name. Now, we know that the stars are beyond numbering. Do you notice what God's greatness is like? He is the God who summons the stars to come and follow him in a ray as he leads them out one by one, and he calls them each one. Every single one of them by name. And we know that there are as many as there are grains of sand on the seashore. But he has got them all named. His greatness, you see, extends to this. That he not only knows the stars by name, but he has the hairs of the head of his children all numbered. And not one of them, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Now there is God's greatness related to his keeping power over the stars of the universe. When he calls them by name to appear, not one of them will be missing. And the eternal God is able thus to call out his people one by one and to know them by name. And in the end of the day, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them will be missing. Behold, your God, says Isaiah, Now that leads us right into the application. If he can do that for the stars of the heaven, how much more will he do it for the sons of men? And how infinitely more for his own children. So Isaiah applies, do you notice? He applies the truth. In verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, And complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. And then he goes on to tell them how the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He not only does not lack strength, he supplies it to the weakest of his children. Now, there are therefore two principal things which should be produced in the lives of God's people as a result of a new revelation of God's greatness. The first is genuine biblical humility. And the second is genuine biblical hope. Before him all the nations are as nothing. He brings to naught the rulers and princes of this world. Genuine biblical humility, you see, is not something that we try to affect. It's not a diffident personality. It's not something indeed of which we are conscious at all, I would think. It is simply a fruit of the knowledge of God. 
Because nothing brings us to our true place before the eternal God but a new vision of his greatness. When man begins to inflate and exalt himself in his stupidity, when he begins to imagine that he is possessed of some greatness, the thing that he desperately needs is an eye-opener to see something of the majesty and glory and greatness of God. But not only will it produce genuine biblical humility, it will also produce genuine biblical hope. Why do you say, O Jacob, verse 27, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. And here is the picture of a people beginning to lose hope, to have a sense of despair, to be overwhelmed by the greatness of circumstances and the greatness of their enemies and the greatness of man and not by the greatness of God. Now, says Isaiah, do you not know, have you not heard, that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Now, you will notice that greatness and strength and power does not depend on natural forces like youthfulness. For even the youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. There is no greater illustration of what I mean than in that great account in 2 Kings chapter 6 of Elisha. Do you know it? My favorite story in the Old Testament. The king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, had begun to be distressed and concerned because all the plans that he had made in his attacks on Israel began to be communicated back to the king of Israel. And whenever they went out against the people of Israel, they discovered that the king of Israel already knew where the ambush was going to be taking place, and they were frustrated. Now the king of Syria gathered his courtiers together and his generals, and he said, Now, something's going sadly wrong in our plans. What's happening is that whenever I plan something in secret with you, my counselors, the king of Israel seems to discover what's happening, and we are defeated and frustrated. Go away and find out what's happening. So they went away. And they came back to him and they said, My Lord, what's happening is this. Somebody seems to be communicating to the little prophet down in Dothan called Elisha everything that my Lord the King plans in his bedchamber. And he said, Get the army and send them down to Dothan and annihilate him. 
So all the army of Syria, the horses and the chariots, set out that day, and they made their way to Dothan to destroy the little prophet. The fascinating picture, if you think of it, you know, if somebody had stopped them in the midst of their journey and said, where is this huge army going to? And for what great encounter are you prepared? They would say, we are going to destroy the little prophet of God down in Dothan. That's where we're going. Well, they arrived there. And when they came, they covered the entire area with the horses and chariots of Syria. And Elisha had one young servant, a young man probably in the school of the prophets with him. And the young servant went out and he looked as he heard the rumbling of the chariots of the enemy and he saw the mountainside filled with the horses and chariots and infantry of Ben-Hadad. And he called Elisha out. And Elisha looked at it and saw the young man trembling. And he said, Don't be afraid. More are they that be for us than they that be for them. Now I can just imagine the young man looking at the mountains and viewing the hosts of the enemy around him, and then looking at Elisha and himself, and listening to Elisha's voice, more are they that be for us than they that be for them. And I can imagine that young man saying to himself, that's the great problem with these old fellows, you know. <laughs> they really ought to have retired him a long time ago. Unrealistic, that's the problem. Not really facing the facts of the contemporary situation. But you see, my friends, it was the old prophet who was facing the facts. And he turns to God and says, Lord, open the young man's eyes. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes and he saw the mountain full of the horses and chariots of the Lord. And that day God gained a glorious victory. And the people of Syria found their army led blindfold into Samaria. What is it that John says in his epistle? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Of whom does the prophet speak? If you turn to John chapter 12 later tonight, you will discover that he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his infinite glory. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for such a hope and for such a Savior. Let us pray. We bow in your holy presence, almighty God, and we marvel 
at your greatness and majesty. Pray that the eyes of our understanding may be opened, that we may see something of the wonders of your person in these days for the glory of your great name. Amen.